Well, good morning, everybody, once again. Well, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be starting off on a new journey, a new series. Uh, we're going to be taking on a new book from Scripture, and in doing so, we're going to be looking at a community that is less than perfect. Sounds a little bit familiar. Sounds a little bit like me, really. Less than perfect. We're all in this together. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be essentially putting the luggage in the car that helps us get to the destination we want to do. That's what we're going to do this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but when uh, <clears throat> you take the car, you take the family on a, a road trip, it's a, <clears throat> should I say, a logistical challenge. Should we? Uh, you've got to get all, all the suitcases packed. You've got to make sure the car's all good. You've got to make sure the kids are well prepped and prepared to know that this is a long journey ahead. And uh, everybody's really good to go. And you get in the car, and of course, as we all know, when you do all the planning and preparation, the road journey, the road, the road trip is perfect. Isn't that right? Kids never ask when we're going to get there. No one ever wants to go to the bathroom. No one wants an ice cream. The kids never fight. Okay? It's a perfect scenario if you plan well. Well, we know that's not true. And maybe it's a good thing because as a, um, as a uh, church community here, looking at this church community that we're going to study, uh, we get to see ourselves reflected in the Scriptures. Uh, nearly a decade ago, we looked at this book, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians, because um, we, we looked at this, uh, like I say, nearly a decade ago. But last year when I was preparing, looking forward to this year, and trying to get my head around what it is that God was uh, saying to me about what we should be looking at, I became acutely aware of the the dynamic social change that our nation is going through. And we're face, being faced with some choices at the end of the year in respect to uh, voting on things in respect to drugs, uh, euthanasia, uh, the abortion, has, abortion laws have changed in recent times. And we find ourselves in this state of flux. And what does it mean for us to be the church? And what is it that's held our idea of life, our idea of faith, what has held all these things together over the centuries? Well, it's been the Word of God. It's been this timeless truth that is given to us. And so <clears throat> to, do, to address um, not only Scripture, but engage with our society, we need to look at what Bible says about what it is that we are going through. And so this morning we're going to take on, as I say, uh, an opportunity to put a whole lot of luggage in the car, getting ready for this journey down this road of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And so to do that, um, we're calling the series, um, what are we going to call the series? We're calling it, can you just bring that up, please? Um, we're calling the series Prodigal Church. Prodigal Church. The reason we're doing that is because the story of the prodigal son has a parallel within this, this book. The prodigal son story, of course, is about a, a son who felt that he knew best took his inheritance early, but then went off to a far land and squandered it. And then he finally woke up and realized that he had love and grace and hope back home with his father, and so he returned. The Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to the Corinthian church, is essentially like the father in this prodigal son story, who is calling the church back to what the original intentions were, what the original plan was. And so therefore this morning, as we look at this book, I want to keep in mind, you to keep in mind that we're talking about a church here that is less than perfect, and it is getting further and further away from God's intention. And so 
what we're doing is we're going to set this up in a way that we can understand the context this morning. Uh, like I say, keep, keep referring back to putting, these, uh, putting the luggage in the car. So um, help me out here, guys. We'll just get this working. So here's a picture of Greece. And sadly, I haven't put Corinth in there, but I'm going to explain the geography here. So Greece is in the yellow. This is where our, the center of our conversation is today. And uh, there's this island here, essentially an island, called the Peloponnesos. It's rather large, okay? But um, if it wasn't for this little bit of land just here, it would be an island. And this is where Corinth is. This is where Paul wrote the letter to this fledgling church. Uh, Paul was there for 18 months planting the church right on that little bit of land there. Now, the reason why the church was there, sorry, not the church was there, the town was there, is because it was a crossroads for people who were trading or traveling. As you would expect, if you could get your boat across this piece of land here, or if you can get your goods carried across from one side to the other, it would save literally a five to six day journey all the way around the coast here. And uh, this is pretty wild seas around here. Uh, in the book of Acts, we read about the Apostle Paul and how he got shipwrecked. Well, Paul actually gets shipwrecked because of a storm in this area here. So we can see how real it was, and the, uh, the, not the, too much the temptation, but the wisdom to go to Corinth and to get your boat either dragged across the land, the four kilometers, four kilometers of land, and there were people who had literally dragged these boats across, or you would get your goods moved from one side to the next through different means of transport and put onto another boat. So when you have people trading, when you have travelers, sailors, merchants, you get this connection point in Corinth of all these different cultures, all these different languages, all these different customs, all these different goods, all these different religions. And so Corinth is a melting pot of everything that is going on, <clears throat> not just in this area of Greece, but right through the Silk Road, right out into the Middle East, all the way through Europe. And it was this point of uh, connection that I, I think probably excited Paul because he could go there and if he could seed the gospel into this area, it would become a seedbed for faith to expand out into the regions. Okay, so not only was this place Corinth an exciting place to be because of all the trade, but because of all the different cultures, uh, there were different religions there as well, numbers of temples to different Greek gods. But the main temple, the temple that was the largest and that was on the highest part of Corinth, was a temple dedicated to the god, goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the goddess of sex. Okay, and so when you are worshipping a god dedicated to love and sex, of course, that permeates the society. It changes all of the morals of society. And therefore, Corinth was a very promiscuous society, is a nice word of saying. Uh, it was a very lust-filled city. You take a temple dedicated to the goddess of love and sex. In that temple, there were prostitutes who dedicated themselves by an act of worship to the goddess of Aphrodite and would have sex with customers. Customers, where did they come from? Well, you had all these uh, people traveling from all over the world, all these sailors, obviously. And so it was a bit of a, a wild old place, Corinth, wasn't it? Then you add to that 
The fact that in Corinth, they used to hold every two years a, um, a sporting event called the Isthmus, Isthmus Games. I-S-T-H-M-U-S. You say it, Isthmus. Go on. Yeah, you're not doing any better than I am, are you? Okay. But every two years, the Isthmus Games would occur. This is a precursor to the Olympics, which started in Athens. Okay, but uh, it was a competition, and they would do all sorts of different events, uh, wrestling, running, uh, javelin throwing, shot put discus, reading poetry. All those really highly competitive games. Yes, reading poetry. And if you won, if you won, you got the auspicious prize of a stalk of celery. Okay, that was your prize, a stalk of celery. Okay, and so um, obviously it was a symbol. You know, it wasn't that celery was super expensive, I don't think. Um, but however, all this to say, Corinth was a go-to place. It was exciting for a whole lot of reasons, good reasons and bad reasons, but it was a place where things happened. And so Paul goes to Corinth and he sets himself up here and begins to preach the gospel. Here's a, obviously a modern day picture of the remnants of Corinth and some of the, the temples. And here is a, um, a picture of what now is the Corinthian canal. Okay, so uh, instead of dragging your boat across, um, you can now let your... Um, cruise liner go through the, um, through the canal. Cruise liners, eh? They say that they're, uh, they now call them the petri dishes for COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so uh, God bless anybody who goes on one of those in the future. But um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start by just grabbing the first few verses and seeing how it is that Paul addresses this community. This community of people who have been gathered together by the grace of God who for 18 months had Paul's supervision, leadership, and instruction. Okay? So let's start 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, we'll stop there. Stop at the second apostrophe. Paul. Paul was called Saul. Uh, Saul was a persecutor of the church, as we know. Many of us will know. And uh, the book of Acts records for us a time when Saul was persecuting the church, racing around Israel and beyond, arresting people, putting them in jail, even overseeing the murder of some. And so therefore, Saul was the enemy of the church. However, on the road to Damascus, as he was pursuing people, he has an encounter with Jesus. And this bright light occurs, he gets thrown off his horse, and immediately he has this conversion experience, and God calls him to a life of service. In the process, Paul, Saul, is blinded, and uh, he, he makes his way to Damascus, where God has already set up another encounter with another guy called Ananias, a Christian. And God says to Ananias, I want you to pray for Saul. And in doing so, um, have, there's a message I've got you to give to him. Well, Ananias was understandably scared about the idea of having anything to do with Saul because Saul's the guy who arrested Christians and threw them in jail. Uh, however, we see the call upon Saul's life in this moment. It says this, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So here's a job description for you, okay? Here's a job description for you, uh, Saul. 
You haven't been told yet you're going to change your name. That'll happen later. But Saul, there's your job description. Proclaim my name to Gentiles, kings, and to the people of Israel. That's pretty thorough, isn't it? That's a pretty big task. But he goes from being a, um, a villain of the faith to a hero of the faith. And pretty quickly, people were saying, the guy who persecuted us is now one of us and is proclaiming the gospel. And so Paul himself is now an apostle. And so when we, we look at this heading, we see uh, Paul identifying himself as an apostle. And there's always this gray area about who gives themselves titles. You know, how do you give a title to somebody in the context of, of Christian life and Christian work? Uh, when I've been to these big old churches around Europe, more often than not, you'll find pretty close to the entranceway or maybe right at the back uh, of the sanctuary, um, big statues of the 12 disciples, or as well often known, the 12 apostles. The interesting thing about this is that uh, you've got 11 disciples who have got a good uh, CV. Uh, then you've got one who didn't make it, okay? The final test, Judas betrayed Jesus, so he's not in the picture. But there's this um, obscure character by the name of Matthias. You see, what happens when we see in the book of Acts, when the church is born, the disciples are sitting around waiting for God to do something, okay? We all know what that's like, waiting for God to do something. Jesus told the disciples to go and wait, to be empowered from on high. So they're waiting. And this is the period of time that we know that exists between Easter and Pentecost, 50 days later. So they're sitting there waiting, doing nothing. And in their doing nothing, they realize that they have to replace Judas. And to replace Judas, what they do is they pull a couple of guys together and they say, we think you're the best candidates to replace Judas, two guys. And they throw um, essentially a dice to determine the will of God, which is an interesting way of doing it. Uh, and the guy who wins is a guy called Matthias. Well done, Matthias. But that's the last you ever hear of him. That's it. He appears, he's gone. Okay? What I find uh, more compelling is that God actually had the Apostle Paul up his sleeve, really. He was like, this is the man who's really going to become the most pretty much the most influential apostle that we see in Christendom. And so here is Paul, an apostle. Paul, by definition, being an apostle, is one who establishes churches. In its purest form, an apostle is a church planter. And so for Paul, he comes into the picture here, he says to, him, says to us, I am an apostle and uh, I have authority given to me by Jesus because of the call upon my life. Okay, you with me so far? We're putting all the we're putting all the bags in the, in, the, in the car here. We're getting this car loaded up for this journey. So we've only got to the second apostrophe of the first verse of the book of Corinthians so far. And it's only taken us 15 minutes to get here. So we've got a long journey, okay? So you're going to be starting to tell me, Dad, when are we going to get there? All right. But let me move on to the third apostrophe because things start to get really exciting. We get introduced to another character, a character by the name of Sosthenes. Sosthenes' name is a little bit easier to say than Ithmuth, okay? But um, nevertheless, Sosthenes is only mentioned one other time in the Scriptures. And I need to explain how this all works out. You see, when Paul was in Corinth, he was there for 18 months. And in that 18-month period, he upset people. 
It was Paul's pattern to go to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Go to the synagogues and explain to the synagogue uh, worshippers that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of everything they were hoping for in a Messiah that was to come. And so he would take the Old Testament scriptures and explain the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Right? The only tension, of course, you find is that the leaders of the Jewish community in Jerusalem had set in motion the death of Jesus. So there was a real conflict here. So to agree that Jesus was the Messiah was also to agree that uh, the, the Jewish community at its highest levels had got it wrong about Jesus. So there's that tension there always has been and always will be. However, what happens is um, the Jewish community are really upset with the fact that Paul is preaching about Jesus being the fulfillment of everything they would hope for. And so what they do is they appeal to the Roman authorities and say, look, um, we've got this guy, Paul, he's stirring up trouble for us. Can you come? We're going to have a court session and we're going to put him on trial and we want you to adjudicate Mr. Roman uh, authority. It would be a little bit like us having a problem here at Bethlehem Baptist Church with our doctrine or our theology, what we believe, and ringing up the police station going, hey, would you mind sending down an officer and sort out some of our problems for us? Okay, not probably the wisest thing to do, but nevertheless, this is what they do. And a guy called Gallio is the guy who's facilitating this meeting. And I want to show you what happens here. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. Okay, so somebody murdered, say. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter amongst yourself. I will not be a judge of such things. That makes sense, doesn't it? Why would you ring the police to come down here and sort out what we believe with respect to scriptures? Okay, so you've got this Jewish community who are there wanting to put Paul on trial, and they all of a sudden get told that the Romans aren't going to do anything about it. They're basically saying, sort it out for yourself. So Paul's going, sweet, I'm out of here. But these guys are really grumpy. So what do they do? So he drove them off. Okay, that's uh, <clears throat> Gallio. He drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Okay, so the, the Roman guy's like, oh, well, you sort out your own problems. What are you doing? Oh, you're going to beat up the guy around the synagogue? Hey, whatever. You know, and he went home. But this is the only other time in Scripture where Sosthenes is mentioned. And most commentators would suggest to us that it's more than likely that Sosthenes became a follower of Jesus and therefore moved to Ephesus with Paul, where Paul is now writing this letter from. If it is not the same guy, at a minimum, we get to see the level of intensity with which Paul was conducting his ministry in Corinth. We get to see the level of intensity that he was facing as he presented Jesus as the Savior to a community that was expecting a Savior but didn't like the look of Jesus. And so we get to see this anger. We get to see this frustration. We get to see this intensity. And so all that to say... Paul and Sosthenes are now writing to this Corinthian community and explaining to them again how they should live their lives. And so we're going to move on to verse 2 now. Okay? You excited? Verse 2. 
We're good? Good to go? Let's go. Hold your breath. Here we go. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful way in which you say hello to someone. All right? But there's something in here, and I want you to see this. This is really important. The next few verses are going to have more of the same. Paul is saying hello, and he's talking about the good things of God. There's not once here in this opening where Paul commends them for anything. What he's actually doing is celebrating the goodness of God to them. You notice it. He says here, to the church sanctified in Christ. The sanctification is a work that Christ is doing in them. Called to be his holy people. He's reminding them of who they're called to be. Set apart, sacred. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you think, well, this is all good. This is nice. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. However, he moves on and he starts to give us an indication of what he's going to be talking to them about in the next 16 chapters of this letter. He says this, I always thank God, thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Again, no compliment. He's thanking God for them. Nothing about what they've done. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. What Paul is saying here is that you've got an enrichment that has come from the Spirit in the way that you speak, and you have all of this knowledge. Now, these are indicators of what Paul's going to be talking to them about later. You see, this whole thing about speech, all speech, what Paul's going to talk to them about is, um, is the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues is a spiritual gift. But what's happening in this church is that this spiritual gift is starting to be overworked, if you like, even to the point where Paul says to them, look, people come into your meetings and they see everybody speaking in tongues and they can't interpret what's going on. Therefore, it's of no value to anyone. More than that, people actually think you're out of your mind because you're speaking in a language that is foreign to you, but it is a God-given language of praise. So he's saying, you've been enriched with this speech. He's saying, that's great. That's God's gift to you. He also says, you've been enriched um, in every way with not only speech, but with all knowledge. Uh, the gift of the Spirit would allow people to prophesy, to have discernment, to interpret um, tongues. All of this is what they call revelation gifts. In other words, things that are downloaded from the Spirit of God to a person to be able to speak into the community on behalf of God. Okay? So Paul is saying, you've been given this gift of speech, you've been given this gift of knowledge. All right? So he's commending the fact that God is powerful and present in the meeting, in the community. But what we're going to find later on in chapters ahead is that Paul absolutely rips them apart for the fact that these gifts of the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy are there, but they're using them selfishly. They're using them with malice. They're using them to elevate themselves and in every way totally destroy what God's intention was for that community with these spiritual gifts. 
And that's why that passage that we often find read at, at weddings about um, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't keep records of wrongs, all those, those beautiful verses, um, it begins with, you may speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you lack nothing. Okay? That's Paul referring to this, this thing about speech here. You can have all the spiritual gifts in the world, but if you think it's all about you, then you're in trouble. And guess what? These guys were in trouble. We're talking deep, deep trouble. <laughs> so, I want to illustrate it this way. What Paul is saying to this community is, you have everything in Christ given to you. Everything. Everything. Everything you'll ever need to be a good Christian. But it's all a gift of grace. And what you need to do is to grow into this grace. Right at the beginning, Paul says that you were sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means that you are on that journey of becoming more and more like Christ. So let me illustrate this. Um, I need a volunteer. Sam Greg Merritt, you'll be a great volunteer. Okay, Sam's, Sam's one of our interns. Come on up, Sam. Sam, this is, this is not scripted, okay? This is totally spontaneous. Sam will beat me tomorrow. So here is a all-black training jersey. Sam, I want you to put it on, all right? You can put that on. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, Sam, I just, um, my name's Ian Foster. I coach the All Blacks. I'd just like to welcome you, mate. I'd like to thank you for joining the All Blacks. We've been watching you play second division rugby for the Mirapara Pirates. And uh, we just want to say uh, welcome to the team. And uh, we, we've got you, we've seen who you are, we know your potential, and in 18 months' time, Sam, um, we're going to go to Twickenham, and you're going to run on with a number seven jersey on your back. You like that? Yes. Yeah, you like that? Okay, so you're going to be standing in the tradition of Richie McCaw, Michael Jones, Ian Kirkpatrick, Colin Meads. I almost weep when I mention these names. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask you now, Sam, what are you going to do over the next 18 months? Train. Train. Yeah. Okay. All right. Better tell us what you're going to do. You're going to... Yeah, I'm going to train heaps. Yep. There's a ball. That's, you met every ball. Okay. And what are you going to do with your diet, you know? Oh, yeah. Just eat veggies. Eat veggies. Veggies, yeah. <laughs> you're the first vegan all black. Yeah. You will be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay, but train really, really hard yeah, yeah, to become the best you can be, right? Yeah. Yeah, because you've got this aspirational goal of fulfilling what you're capable of, but also what it is that I see in you, right? Yeah. And that's the key, isn't it? Because I've welcomed you into this all-black family, and I see what you can be, and you don't even know yet what you can be. But I see what you bring, and you can bring your best game, sorry, your best... Um, attention or intention to that game, eh? So that you can run on to Twickenham in 18 months' time and smash. Oh, I just crying again. Smash. <laughs> you smash the English. Yeah? yeah? Okay, good. So, so I, I use this as an illustration because um, you have two choices. See, by giving you that all-black juicy, you could say, man, I'm just going to run out and get myself a contract with Women's Day, whip my shirt off. <laughs> You know, go and sell, um, you know, whatever you sell, 
you know, for Briscoes or uh, sell, um, what do the All Blacks sell? Insurance. Jockeys. Jockeys. <laughs> we'll leave that to the Canterbury guys, okay? Yeah, all right. So, and you could become the man or you can work hard at fulfilling what it is that the coach sees that you can do. You've got two choices. Because what I've told you, Sam, is that you're an All Black for life. We will always play you. We will always back you. We will always support you. We'll always believe in you. And so what you do with all of that is really the, the critical dynamic as to how your life is going to be outworked, isn't it? Yeah. You can take advantage of all those opportunities. The trainers, the training environment, all the experience, all, those, all that's there for you to be the best that you can be. And this is essentially what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You have everything in Christ Jesus given to you. Grace, you're sanctified so that you can go off and be the best you can or you can take advantage of the spiritual gifts that have been given and use them to enhance yourself and become the man, the hero, or whatever. Okay? Let's give him a... Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Keep working, mate. One day you'll fill that jersey out like I do. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're kind to me, actually. Dion in the first service poked my tummy and said... You've got to do a bit of work, so anyway. Which <laughs> is true, which is true. But I use it, obviously, as an illustration to try to show you what it is that Paul's intentions were towards the Corinthian church. Paul saw them for who they could be because he could see this community through God's eyes. And even though they were surrounded by a community of, of, of people who are worshipping other religions, where there was... Um, sexual promiscuity going on like you wouldn't believe, uh, where people worshipped the physical form. You know, when you are living in an environment where it's all about sports and all that, you know, all those Greek gods, you got Sam with a shirt off there and statue form every, every second street. And so all of this was completely contradictory to the spiritual life that the Christian community was being called to. And so Paul could see with his eyes what God wanted for this community. And they were, instead of living a life that was aspiring to what the picture of God wanted for them, they were turning the other way and using all of what God had given to them to build themselves up, to puff themselves up, to make themselves look better in their own eyes. They became competitive. There was division amongst them. And, uh, and therefore, this whole church was now a church at war in itself. And Paul had to call them back. And that's why I say this is, the, this is about the story about the prodigal church. Paul says this, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And in the same way I'd say this illustration works because I'd say to Sam, Sam, we want you to run out at Twickenham in 18 months' time. You do not lack any support. You do not lack any training. You don't lack any food. You don't lack any knowledge. You don't lack any encouragement. And that's what Paul was saying to his community. He was saying, you don't lack anything in respect to reaching your potential of what God has called you to do. It's all there. It's all there. You just got to use it wisely. Um, is, you know, the, the thing that we often laugh about is when we see in the newspaper uh, illustrate, or illustration stories about people who have gone and spent a lot of money on really, really expensive, powerful sports cars. 
and then they put them into a lamppost because they don't know how to control the power. Okay, and it was like, well, you know, you give a boy a big toy and he'll wreck it. Um, what it is here is that we're seeing Paul describe this community as a community that has an enormous amount of power, God's power, but they have to use it wisely. And he says this, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a promise here that this, this journey that we're on with Jesus is going to take us from the moment that we accept Christ into our lives right through and the forgiveness that is given to us, the confidence that God has in our ability to keep on becoming like Christ will present us ultimately blameless because of God's forgiveness for us. And what a beautiful way to live your life, to realize that as we press into God, as we press into God, God's intentions to us, for us, are to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us pure, to cause us to leave behind the old life and to grow in grace towards what God has for us, the vision that he has for us. And God is faithful. Go, guys. God is faithful, who has called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's all about fellowship with Christ that is going to get us across the line. So we finish this introduction here, and it all looks really, really good and hopeful and promising. But immediately, and this is what we're going to touch on next week, immediately Paul starts to tell them that they're in trouble. So let's just have a quick quick peek at what brings next week. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. There's Paul's goal, that the church have unity. Now, this is a church that um, some say, I worship Paul. Hmm? He's the messenger. Some say, I worship Apollos. That was Paul's mate. Some say, I worship Jesus. Oh, how cool. You know? Uh, later on, you've got, a sto- you've got stories about sexual immorality within that community that make, you, make your eyes water. It's just like, whoa, that's just really weird stuff. Okay? And then they've got arguments about how they, how they eat meals together. The wealthy people would turn up to the potluck dinner with all their flash tucker, eat it all, and then the poor people come and have nothing. Well, that's a great way to do a potluck dinner, eh? Baptists can do that better, you know? It's a spiritual gift. <laughs> then there's arguments about whether they should eat meat that's been sacrificed at a uh, temple down the road before taken to the local butcher to be served out and sold. They've got arguments about that. Then they've got disagreements about spiritual gifts. Who exercises those gifts? Who has the authority to, 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 to use these spiritual gifts? Uh, then they have arguments about whether you should be married or not married, or if you've been married and your spouse dies, whether you should be remarried. And so Paul is going to address all of these over the next uh, few chapters. And what does, what does Paul see right from the beginning? Paul calls these people... Saints. Like, you're kidding me, right? To the saints in Corinth. See, because of all the troubles 
that these folks are going through. Paul sees through all of that, and he sees Christ in each one of them. He says, the gift of God that's been given to you, that seed of faith that's been planted in you. Paul says, I see that. I can see that in each of you, and I'm calling it out. I'm calling it up. I'm calling it to grow and to expand. I don't see the rubbish that you're contending with because the world drives it upon you and and forces you and challenges you to be anything apart from Christ. I see beyond that, and I call that out of you. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. In exactly the same way that an old man would have leaned on his fence, waiting for his son to come back from a faraway land, a prodigal son. And when he saw him running across the paddock to him, he would have said, I can see my son in there. I can see God's favor in that boy. I can see everything that God wants for him. And that's the way God sees you. Each one of you. And we know we let ourselves down with our actions, our attitudes, our thinking, our past, our present, and sometimes even our future we know isn't going to be ideal because we're trying to break habits. But God wants to call that out of you. He wants to call out of you what is planted in you, and that's Christ himself. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Because that's what the gospel is all about. And there's going to come a day we're going to run on to Twickenham. The heavenly Twickenham. You know what I'm saying here, don't you? And we're going to be celebrated because of what Christ has done in us. And it's all, all going to be about Jesus. Everything. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, we, uh, we're just so mindful that as we look at Scripture, we see, we see our community, our nation. We see a whole lot of temptations. We see a whole lot of challenges that face us, even as the church today. We're being drawn down certain rabbit holes, being tempted in ways that um, are not good for us. They, they're, they're way less than the life that you're calling us to live. And so, God, we, we want to live up to what we've been called to. We want to grow to fill out those, those expectations. So for all of us, Lord, we, we just need to be reminded not of how far we've fallen, but of what our potential is. Lord, we're never going to overcome our weaknesses by focusing on them, but we can grow exponentially as we look at Jesus and say, that's who I want to become like. And so as we're called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, as Paul said, we know that you can do the immeasurable within us. You can do the miraculous within us. You can take a very, very humble life and allow it to change the community around us, allow it to change the world around us. Lord, that's the hope and that's the promise of the church for 2,000 years, that where we are is not where we remain. And so God, as we open scripture, as we begin this journey, as we get the car started down the road, Lord, we just want to pray that by your spirit, you'd guide us, open up our hearts to see afresh the word of God for us today, how it applies in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And help us to be the people of God, sanctified, holy, set apart for you. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team.